Good morning, Creekside. I'm Mark, one of the pastors here. I'm so glad to be worshiping with you. Thank you guys so much. That was so lovely and powerful. And man, I'm excited to uh, open up the Word of God with you this morning. So um, welcome. If you uh, are visiting with us, we're so glad to have you here. And we are in the middle of a passage on Ecclesiastes. So uh, this is guaranteed. If you're like new visiting, I, I can almost promise you this will be the least uplifting sermon you've ever heard in your life. Um, we are in Ecclesiastes, and he is just digging into like everything that is wrong and unfulfilling in the world around us. So, uh, congrats! You know, I'm glad you get to experience that with us, um, man. This morning, um, I, as I was preparing this, uh, I got a piece of news. Okay, so and it brought me back to seven years ago. So this this news brought me back to seven years ago. Uh, Laura and I were moving up, and, and so I drove a moving truck from L.A. up to Rockland. And um, the way I used that time, just in the moving truck by myself, was listening to this new podcast that everyone was telling me I had to listen to called Serial. So anybody Serial fans in here? Okay, so the, all right, thank you. All right, good, good. Boom, boom. You know, you know I'm where I'm going with this too then. Um, so Serial is this podcast that kind of follows, it, like goes serially through this, this case um, where, where this 17-year-old Adnan Syed was accused of murdering his ex-girlfriend. And um, so the whole case, like, had happened, but it was, it was totally botched. And I'm telling you guys, like, it was totally botched. And so this podcaster kind of sets it right. She digs into all the stuff. She re-interviews everybody. She's talking about some of it was the way the police handled it, but a lot of it was just, like, the defense and everything else. So by the time seven hours later I get out of the moving truck, I'm, like, an expert on this case and on the justice system, like, period. And, um, and I'm just like, this is, this is wrong. This guy should not be in jail. Well, this week uh, Adnan got released from prison um, because they— they overturned his conviction on the case. And um, it's like a big deal, okay? And I feel like, so that, that like serial podcast was like this big step in, in sort of um, uh, popularizing the idea of like the true crime thing, which is now like a big, big deal, obviously. I'm sure you guys all have like shows or podcasts or whatever that you like dig into and you're like, yeah, what's really going on with all this stuff? And um, there, there's something in our like our hearts that just longs for justice. And there's these cases where we're just like, no, that is not right, that that doesn't happen. And so good for whoever that can monetize that and turn it into entertainment. Um, but it's just this human piece of us. And that's the piece that as we go through Ecclesiastes, that's the piece that the preacher in this book is going to be addressing, is this longing in our hearts for justice and the reality that we look around at the world around us and we find that there's justice lacking in so many ways in so many areas. And so that's what we're going to dig into. Now, if, you, if you're um, kind of new to the book, what he's doing is he's going through all of life on these different quests. And so he took a quest for like wisdom. Maybe I can figure out, find meaning in life through searching for a bunch of wisdom. And then he says, I'm going to take a quest for pleasure. And he's like, I'm just going to throw myself into it. And anything that makes me happy, I'm just going to do it. Um, he, he's had a quest for like meaning in work. And this is now a quest to find justice. In the middle of this, there's a couple times this happens. It, last week, we looked at this interlude. So in the middle of his quest, he kind of gave us an interlude at the beginning of Ecclesiastes 3, where he gives us this beautiful poem about time and how there's a time for everything under the sun, a time, time to be born and a time to die, a time to mourn and a time uh, to rejoice. And he kind of goes through this beautiful um, rundown of like how time works and how God's kind of holding it all together, making everything beautiful in this time. And so we had this kind of more hopeful, more beautiful picture last week. And then this week he just dives back into other quests, other ways to try to find meaning. And I'll tell you, this is the toughest one of them all. So let's dive straight into it. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 16, he says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And so he's, 
Uh, I'm going to actually read verse 17 also. He says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Okay, so he's looking under the sun. So if you remember, he's, he's like not taking God into consideration of everything that's happening around him. He's not like looking big picture up above and, and, and kind of weighing it that way. He's looking under the sun. So he's kind of shielding his eyes. He's looking at what can I see in my own observations of this earth? And he's saying, I'm looking for justice. Maybe there's like some meaning in this. And he's looking for justice and he keeps seeing like, okay, here's a place where there should be justice. Here's a place where there should be righteousness. And he's like, I'm looking everywhere. And all I'm seeing is that there is none. There's no justice in this world. Like justice keeps getting miscarried. Everything keeps falling apart. And nothing works the way that it should. Why isn't there justice in this world? And so this is his quest. It sets him pondering. And this is like very relatable, I think, for us. And so it, it goes beyond the podcast. Like think of your own home. I think of my daughter's. And they're constantly want justice in our home, okay? And so it's like the, the, the cries for justice that come from these uh, two young ladies that have, I think, a pretty wonderful life. They're just like my, like, my sister did this. And they're just like, why, why can't I stay up? Why can't I eat ice cream? And just they cry for justice. And so um, we're, we're good parents, to be honest. Like we really are. And so we, we give them justice. And sometimes it feels like justice to them. Sometimes it does not feel like justice. But there's all these like crying out. And, and, and nobody, honestly, we're all... Um, not getting full justice at home. Sometimes you end up apologizing for things that aren't your fault and whatever else. You can go into the work world, and uh, in the work world, right, you, you get passed over for promotions that you should get, right? You, you, you look at, like, what other people around you are making, and you're not making that. Um, sometimes you get unfairly disciplined for things at work, and so our work life is full of injustices all around us. Um, in society, like, society, American society, we don't have the best track record with justice. Now, I, I love living in America, but we have things like slavery that was a thing. We have things like Jim Crow that was a thing. There's things like the Me Too movement that just show there's all of this, like, injustice in the society around us. It's a great society. I'm so thankful to live here, but it's still broken. And we can look around and be like, okay, here are plenty of cases where justice is not being carried out. And for me, the hardest one is also thinking, okay, looking at the church and being like, man, this is the place where we treat each other right, right? We love each other. We care for each other. Uh, we work together. And yet even in the church, like so many of you have this wounding that's come from the church because the church has not been a place of justice, where, where you've been hurt and wounded by people not treating you the way you deserve to be treated. And those wounds are so hard, especially when it comes from people who should be doing that. And so there's all around us, there's these cries for justice. Like, like let's do what's right. Let's bring justice to the situation. And, and to be honest, like, as I'm processing this, I know there's like a whole bunch of us in this room that are in sort of a, a political, cultural area where we're kind of taught to like um, look down on those cries for justice. We're kind of taught like, okay, if someone's crying out for justice, if someone's marching for something, if someone's protesting for something, that's just like wokeism and we get real dismissive of it and we're like, you guys need to just grow up and whatever. And, and I'm telling you like, that it makes sense. There's all kinds of ways this can go wrong. And so often what we call out for as justice, we're, we're wrong in our vision of that. But the cry itself to say, this world is broken and it shouldn't be this way and we need to do something about it. That cry is echoed thousands of years ago in the book of Ecclesiastes. He's just saying, like, I'm looking at this world and there's all kinds of areas where there's no justice. And so when we hear those calls from the people around us, we should be at least a little bit compassionate to say, okay, you're right. Justice, like, maybe, maybe you're off in what you're seeing. Maybe you're off in how you're doing it. But yes, I can affirm this cry for justice that's coming up from the people that are around us. And so we have to kind of balance all that for ourselves. And then here's the toughest part of it all. The toughest part of it all is that if we look at the world around us and we see there's so much injustice out there, um, we also have to 
begin looking within and saying, you know what, if I'm being perfectly honest, there's plenty of injustice in here too, right? Because we look, like, what's, what is the injustice? It's people not be tr- being treated the way that they're meant to be treated. Uh, Francis Schaeffer talks about how um, you look at the people in the world around you. We know they're made in the image of God and, and are to be treated with dignity and respect. But if I look at my own life and how I treat the people around me, I'm not always looking at those people as though, treating them as though they're actually made in God's image. And so the hard thing is, man, it'd be nice if we could just be upset about injustice out there. But if we're going to do that and we're going to be authentic and honest and consistent, we have to also be upset about the injustice that's in here, that we're perpetuating on the people around us. Alexander Solzhenitsyn says that it'd be nice if there was a line between the good people and the bad people, and all we had to do was just take the bad people and push them off to the side or put them on an island or something. But he says the hard thing is that the line between good and evil runs through every human heart, and he says who is willing to destroy a piece of himself? That is the hard thing. And so when we cry out and we look like the preacher does and says, man, there's no justice anywhere, we've got to open ourselves to that too and just say, you know what? Um, it, it, that problem is a problem in here as well. But there's this universal calling for justice that we have, and we've got to find a way to solve it. This, this week I read, read from N.T. Wright. I'm going to share a quote with you. He says, our passion for justice often seems like a dream. We glimpse, glimpse for a moment a world at one, a world put to rights, a world where things work out, where societies function fairly and efficiently, where we not only know what we ought to do, but actually do it. He says, and then we wake up and come back to reality. But what we are hearing, when we, uh, what are we hearing when we're dreaming that dream? It's as though we can hear, not perhaps a voice itself, but the echo of a voice. A voice speaking with calm, healing authority, speaking about justice, about things being put to rights, about peace and hope and prosperity for all. The voice continues to echo in our imagination, our subconscious. We want to go back and listen to it again, but having woken up, we can't get back into the dream. I love the way that he says that, that there's this, there's this sense that we all have, right? Like somewhere deep inside of us, there's this sense that like the world shouldn't be this way, right? There's this dream that we have of a world that actually fits together. Now, I think that happens because God put it there. I think God's given humanity this dream, this sense of like this is the way the world ought to be, and we're longing for that. And we disagree on how to get there and how to accomplish it, but we have this kind of ingrained longing. And so what the, what the preacher does, he first says uh, in verse 16 here, he's looking under the sun, he's just like, I can't see justice anywhere. And then he says in verse 17, um, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there's a time for every matter and for every work. See, it's like he's dipping back into that poem from last week in the beginning of chapter 3, and he's saying, okay, I'm just going to set right here my observation that this world is just full of injustice and it's broken. But then he says, you know, it's like he's pulling back to his poem and he's saying, but also at the same time, I believe that God's going to ultimately bring justice. I believe he's going to be the one that does it in the right time. Like he knows how to fix this stuff. So he's not resolving it. And we have to be careful to see as we move through these other verses, you're going to see he's not resolved. There's still tension for him. But he's setting the two things side by side. My experience is really rough, but also I kind of on some level believe that God's going to fix it. So what do we do about that all? So here's what he goes on to and says in verse 18. And boy, it gets rough uh, here. So buckle your seatbelt. He says, moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place, oh, I'm sorry, just reading what I just read. Verse 18, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from dust and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. 
These are dark words, but first I have to point out, it was literally an hour ago that I realized how difficult it is to say out loud the plural of the word beast. It's like really tough. If you've ever tried beasts, it's like, man, it's tough. So should have translated that animals, okay? But nonetheless, he's looking at the world, and this is tough, tough, tough stuff because he's saying, I look out at the world around me, and I'm like, okay, uh, you know, you look at how pointless an animal's life is, okay? Animals, like, they do their thing, and you're like, I think, think that dog's happy, or I think he's sad. We don't really know what's going on. And then they just die in the end, and it's, like, sad. But, yeah, I don't know. I'm getting into dog. I should have used cats as an example. Um, just their <laughs> lives are, are more meaningless or whatever. And he's just saying, he's, he's being really astute, and he's just observing, you know, like, who's to say that my life means any more than an animal's life, Right? Like, who's to say, like, I'm doing all this stuff, like, my life means a whole bunch, and, like, I'm going to find all this pleasure and meaning, but, like, at the end of the day, we all die, and maybe God's just put all this together to just test us so that we can see, like, I'm no better than an animal, right? Like, like even, I don't even know for sure that when I die that my soul goes up and, and not down like the animal's soul. Like, he's, he's really wrestling with some heavy stuff, and he's allowing himself to ask some tough questions. Now, he does come to a, a happier conclusion at the end of the book, so if you are, like, if you leave today really bummed out, just skip ahead to, to the end of the book, and you can, it's, it's not a spoiler, it's fine. But he's allowing himself to at, wrestle, and I love that, because I think often in church what we do is we have these questions that kind of come in for a minute, but we're, we're taught like, mm, you can't ask that, or at least don't let anybody know that you're wrestling with that. And so we kind of stuff it down, and we kind of pretend that we don't have an issue, that we don't have a question, and, and we just kind of soldier on a little bit longer until everything falls apart. And I love that the preacher is sitting here like, Honestly, when I look around, I'm like, how do I even know that I'm going to like live uh, long or more meaningfully than the animals do? And so he's just wrestling with this whole thing. And so there's this, this cycle. So there's, there's the oppression. There's all the, the things we do to harm each other. Then he's saying, there's just the facts of life where we all die. And, and N.T. Wright goes on to talk about, um, so there's the, the evil of injustice, but there's also what, what's called natural evil, stuff that happens in the world, in a world that's broken and marred by sin. People die for reasons that aren't directly related to other people oppressing them. So he says, there are some things in our world, on our planet, which make us say that's not right, even when there's nobody to blame. He says, a tectonic plate has got to do what a tectonic plate has got to do. The earthquake wasn't caused by some wicked global capitalist or by a Marxist or by a fundamentalist with a bomb. It just happened. And in that happening, we see a world in pain, a world out of joint, a world where things occur, which we seem powerless to make right. So this whole thing, he's just looking at everything that's so broken, and he's just saying, like, on every level, it's just like, where are you going to find meaning in it? And I think this is the good reminder, because he's saying all this is still vanity. It's, it's Havel. It's, it's, it's meaningless. It's enigmatic. It will not provide meaning for our lives. And so he steps back. And so on the one side, I was talking over here about, like, many of us are in that mode of, like, man, anyone who's protesting, they're just, like, they're just doing this whole thing, and it's meaningless. They shouldn't be um, fighting against injustice or rioting or protesting. On the other side, there's many of us over here that are, like, man, I'm fighting for justice. Like, I see a cause, and I see people being oppressed. I'm going to fight for it. I'm going to protest. I'm going to do whatever I can to bring justice to the situation, and we need Ecclesiastes just as much as the other kind of person does, too, because here he's saying, Look, fight for it. Bring perfect justice into the world. Give everything you can to it. You're going to find at the end of the day, it still is not meaningful in the way that you need it to be. That the path to meaning and happiness and joy in life is not found in um, injustice itself because this world is so broken.
and, and even if you were to grab it perfectly, it still is going to be this, this he, he calls it a chasing after the wind. You're trying to grab something that you really can't grab. And so he said, like, he's going to call us. There's something deeper that we need. And so here he goes, marching through life. He's looking at everything under the sun, and he's saying, like, how do I even know that my soul goes, to, goes up to God at the end of it all, right? And, and so think about it. He's using his autonomous human reasoning. He's looking under the sun. He's not going to take God's word into account. He's just looking, and he's trying to observe. And, and it's true. You cannot prove with the scientific method, just with your observation, you can't prove what happens to the soul, right? You, you, don't, you can't really even observe the soul that way. So if all you're doing is this and just looking at what's natural and cause and effect in this world, you don't know what happens with the soul. So he's right to say, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> like, how does it all fit together? How does it work out? And so he leaves us here, and if we were to stop there, this is where he'd leave us. He leaves us here in this place that's dark, right? It's tough. It's difficult. But then he gives us a little glimpse of light before moving back into something more depressing. But here's the glimpse of light. So he says in uh, verse 22, So I saw that there is nothing better for a man, uh, nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? So, so it's like he makes these two kind of observations that are complaints about how like uh, broken, like there's no justice, but he's really hoping that there will be with God on some level. And then he's just saying like, man, like even at the end of our lives, we're going to come and there's not going to be any meaning or resolution. Now he's almost, almost like he's making a decision in the midst of that. And he's saying, okay, I can see how broken this is, but, but here's this decision that I'm making is like, I'm going to live my life and find all the meaning and all the joy in it that I can in my work because God is allowing me to do that. I, I think this is actually legitimately a hopeful um, statement that he's making. Like, okay, yes, all these things that I can't fix that are broken, and I don't know how it ends, but at the same time, God's given me these things, and I'm going to enjoy them. So I'm a huge optimist. I like everything is like perfectly fine with me. Everything's going to work out. We're all going to be great, and I have no problem like gaining that perspective. It takes a lot to get me kind of bummed out, okay? Some of you guys are like the exact opposite, and you're just like, the world is terrible, and everyone's terrible, and I'm terrible, and you're like in extreme pessimist with everything, and I feel like you need this reminder that, okay, yes, you're right about so many things being broken, but we're, I'm here to tell you, there are objectively cute and cuddly and good things in this world. Like, it just, it just, the good stuff exists, and even though you can't see it in your life, there's all of these good things flowing into your life all the time, and so you don't have to be as optimistic as I am, but you got to recognize, you know what? Life isn't always as bad and broken um, as I think it is, and I think that's kind of what's happening here. He's looking at how bad everything is, but he's like, but at the same time, I step back, and I can see, yeah, what, what is best is there's these good things that God's letting me enjoy in my work and in my life, and, um, and I need to embrace those. So embrace them because you're going to need them for the next verses, okay? It's going to be dark. These are, okay, so what we're about to experience are the hardest words in all of Ecclesiastes, and I think probably in the whole Bible. So we're jumping into the beginning of chapter 4 now. Here's what he says. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are under the sun. I mean, this is brutal, okay? This is so, so brutal. He's saying, like, man, I'm looking, and there's all these oppressors, and they're just, like, pushing down on everybody else, and they've got all the power, and there's not a single person that's even willing to comfort the people who are being oppressed. So it's better, like, happier to be not alive than to be alive, and happier than all is the person that never has to even enter the world at all. Like, that is dark words, and it's in the Bible. It's crazy. It's crazy. So I, I had this... Um, 
this joke that I decided that I couldn't pull off um, where I was going to say, like, to quote the words of Rage Against the Machine, and then I was just going to yell. Um, some of you guys know Rage Against but I decided I couldn't pull that one off, so I, I, I um, strike it from the record. But their whole thing is just like they're yelling about the injustice in the world. They look at the world, they're like, it's so broken, and everyone's hurting each other, and they, all they can do is just yell and play really aggressively awesome music. And um, before Rage Against the Machine, there was Karl Marx. And um, Karl Marx like, looked at the world around him and said, this, oh, you guys are so uncomfortable right now. Don't worry. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. <laughs> I, I know, this is something I know for a fact. Uh, for many of you, your absolute worst fear is that you're going to walk into church on a Sunday morning and your pastor is going to reference Karl Marx. So just hang on. We're going to be fine. We're going to be fine. Um, Karl Marx looked at the world around him. He's like, the all of history, you can look at it all and you can sum it up and be like, it's one group of people oppressing another group of people. That's the entire problem with the world. Now, I'm going to tell you, the, the preacher tends to agree with that, okay? But Karl Marx's solutions, terrible. Absolutely terrible. So don't follow that. Whew, are we Okay. Are we okay? I can condemn him stronger if you need me to. But the observation, all I'm saying, the observation is as old as uh, the preacher in Ecclesiastes. And it's run all the way through history of everyone just saying, like, look at how people oppress everyone else. And there's nobody there to help the oppressed. You look at Amos and Zechariah. Like, the prophets are calling out, like, justice. Like, we need justice. Who's going to bring justice? You go all the way to the end in Revelation. And in Revelation 6, you've got the martyrs that are, like, under the altar there. And they're crying out to the Lord in Revelation, at the end of it all, crying out, God, how long until you bring justice um, to those that are oppressing us? And they're told, wait a little bit longer. So even at the end, they're waiting for this justice to come. It comes at the very end of it all. God fixes it all. But in the meantime, there's these cries of people that are being oppressed that are not being comforted. No nation has ever experienced this as badly as Israel has. So Israel, by the time that the, um, the writer is writing here in Ecclesiastes, They've experienced 400 years of slavery in Egypt, like terrible, terrible oppression, right? Um, they, later on, they, they get sent into exile, and they're, they're, um, they're under the thumb of Babylon, like terrible suffering and oppression for, for more than 400 years that time. Fast forward in history, and you get the Holocaust. Um, and so there's all this terrible suffering that this nation has gone through, and he's just saying, like, this is so hard, better not to even live. And, and you can see this contradicts what he said earlier in, in, in chapter 3, verse 22, um, you know, better to just live and enjoy life. Like, that's the best thing that we can do. Here he's like, honestly, better not even to have lived. Like, this is so bad and it's so broken. And what this does, I'm, I'm actually going to, like, that's the last verses in Ecclesiastes we're looking at this morning. So I, I, I again, if you need to, skip ahead. It ends in a much happier place than this. I'm going to take us to the New Testament, so it's going to be okay. But where, where, what he does here is he ends it in this tough place, and I feel like we're left with this question of, like, is, is life really this bad? Like, is everything really this meaningless? Is there really nothing that we can do? And he lets us sit there for a minute, and I think that's healthy for us. What I want to do is just sort of um, address, like, the, the problem that's, like, right here at the surface, the problem that you might, that you, you might call this the problem of evil. So if any of you have, like, thought philosophically about some of these things, if you've done any, like, apologetics type stuff, the problem of evil is, like, the big one. And it looks like this. It's saying... If God is all-powerful, then he could um, stop suffering from happening, right? He could stop evil. And if God is all-good, uh, then he will stop suffering, right? Um, so God is all-powerful, God is all-good, and yet we see that suffering and evil exist in the world. So there's something wrong with one of those three things, right? We know for a fact there's suffering in the world, so God's either not all the way powerful or he's not all the way good, and which is it? And that's been this big problem throughout church history. It's, it's a big problem in many of our hearts as we like sit here and wrestle, and sometimes we're feeling good about our faith, and we're like, that's awesome. And 
other times you're like, honestly, that's kind of a big problem for me, and I wrestle with that. And so I'm going to solve it right here in the last five minutes that we have together. Um, uh, and, and actually, like, I'm, I'm obviously, like, joking, but I just want to say, like, um, there are things that make sense to me in regard to addressing this um, that are working for me, that keep my faith healthy and alive right now. Um, there's other times in my life where it doesn't, doesn't work as much. And so wherever you're at, I, I don't know, like, what answer you need. I, I don't presume that the things I'm going to share right now are going to, like, solve it for you or fix it for you. I, I, like, this is a relational thing and not, like, a intellectual transactional thing. And so what I want to do here is just invite you to, like, take the preacher's questions seriously, okay? He's wrestling with this. Like, how, how, the world is so evil and broken, and there's all this injustice. Like, where's God in this, right? Where's the meaning in all this? And, and he gives us that question. So let's take it and look at it and wrestle with it for a minute, and, um, and we'll invite you to kind of wrestle with it from there. But C.S. Lewis is always helpful with things. And so in Mere Christianity, he talks about how when we make a, a moral statement like that's wrong, okay, like that's unjust. When we look at that and we make that moral statement, he's saying you've got to recognize you're using a standard to declare that thing to be unjust. Does that make sense? So you're saying this is not right. It shouldn't be this way. Well, ask yourself, where does that come from? Where does my sense of right or wrong come from? And he says, ultimately, that comes from God himself. And so there's this weird sense that when we look at the world and say, it's broken, it shouldn't be this way, there's a sense in which we're pointing to something God has ingrained in us. And there's, there's a way of kind of meeting with and connecting with God in that. Uh, Tim Keller takes it a little bit further. And he talks about how um, when we do this, when we evaluate the problems that are around us, we're using our own standard of saying, this is right and this is wrong. And he's saying what we have, we all have faith. But he's saying we don't always have faith in God and what he's doing and what he says. Our faith often is this blind, absolute faith in our ability to assess what's right or wrong. So he's saying we look at the world around us and we're like, God, why did you let this suffering happen? Why did you let this person die? Why did you uh, let this person be abused? Why did you let this um, earthquake like kill? Like, and he's saying, we, we look around and we're evaluating the whole thing. And he's saying, it, what we're basically seeing, um, he says it like this. He says, if the evil in the world seems pointless to me, then we decide then it must actually be pointless, right? So that faith is in our ability to assess whether it's pointless or meaningless or not. And so he's saying, our faith, man, is in our own ability to conclude that. So he's saying if we, can, if we cannot imagine that God could bring something good out of this evil thing, then we decide, well, then if I can't imagine it, then God can't possibly be doing something good in the midst of this hard thing. So he's saying the problem sometimes isn't with God and what he's doing. The problem often is with like, us trusting our own sense of what's right and wrong a little bit too much. Um, I think the thing that's hard about this is um, there's examples in Scripture where we see God using evil, hard things, injustices, for a good purpose. Um, that might be a scary statement for some of you, but I'm going inv to invite you to wrestle with it a little bit. So the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph gets sold into slavery by his brothers. I mean, there's no way to dress that up. That's absolutely evil. They, they lie to his dad, tell him he's killed. He gets sold into slavery. I mean, this is literally human trafficking, right? He gets sold. He gets falsely accused while he's in prison. Um, like, all this terrible stuff keeps happening to him. And, um, and at the end of the story, though, he stands there, and his brothers who sold him into slavery come back, and, and there's this confrontation, and they come to him, and they're like, we're sorry that we sold you into slavery, right? Which is like, yeah, it's a little bit too late, guys. But Joseph stands there, and he's, he's since been able to, like, be raised into a position where he was able to, like, bring um, life and, and salvation, in a sense, to all these people. And Joseph stands there, and he says, in Genesis 50, 20, you meant it for evil, yes, but God meant it for good. 
And Joseph is able to stand there at the end of that story and just say, I understand it was evil. I'm sure Joseph wasn't at peace with it the whole time, but say, look, there are things we could never have foreseen that God did for good using that evil thing. Now, I'm not saying that to speak into the specific evils that you've experienced. That's a tough thing, and you're going to have to wrestle with that. But I'm saying here's an example in the Bible of God taking something terrible, of an injustice, and doing something good out of it. Um, the, the best example I can ever think of is the crucifixion. So here's, here's God, like, coming down into humanity in the form of Jesus. He's, like, taking on human flesh, and he's living amongst us. He's the one person that never sins, that's always just, that's doing perfect justice. And here he is living in this world, and he is singled out um, to be put to death, right? And he is literally put to death. So if you can think of injustice and evil, like, that's it, man. The, the one person that we know has never sinned, who is God himself, is put to death. That is unjust. And yet we ask, like, can good come out of that evil? And absolutely, right? This is where we find our redemption and our healing. And Jesus himself, through entering into death on our behalf, brings so much life to all of us. So it was still wrong and unjust and evil and should be denounced. And yet at the same time, we see God bringing this good stuff out of it. So again, I want to step back and just say, like, look, you guys have suffered. Like, I know that. I know many of the individual stories in here where there's suffering that I don't want to, I don't want to sugarcoat at all, and I don't want to be dismissive of it. It's for you to wrestle with. But what Tim Keller invites us is he says, look, if we can see good reasons for some of the suffering in the world, is it, is it too much to ask that maybe we have faith and say, okay, maybe God on some level in a way I don't understand has some good reason for all of the suffering in the world? And he leaves it at that. It's, a, it's a, a question you're going to have to wrestle with, right? It's something that I can't answer for you. It's something that isn't quickly solved. And, and again, like I said, like maybe this is like, oh, that helps me. I'm, that's great. Or maybe you're like, I'm angrier than ever, and this does not satisfy the itch that I'm feeling. I think that's fine because the reality is it's for us individually to wrestle with and to come before the Lord and to follow the preacher's lead and ask questions that we aren't usually willing to ask and just say like, this is how I feel. This is what I'm seeing. And you, you might have that faith to like offer that, that side-by-side explanation saying maybe this is it. Um, but the preacher, C.S. Lewis, Tim Keller, they all invite us to say like, hey, um, let's weigh this. And then here's the thing um, that I, that I want to give you before we jump into the New Testament here is the fact of the matter is we want justice to be served. And everywhere we look out there, we want it to be served. But what happens when we see the injustice in our own heart? Do we want justice served then? This is the hardest part of it all for me is I know that I'm imperfect, right? And I know that I have um, perpetuated injustice on the people around me on big, like big, not like, ma- like I'm not like a criminal, you guys, but um, big-ish ways and then really small ways. Like I've perpetuated this injustice, um, And so that makes me guilty before the Lord. It really does. It makes me guilty before the Lord. It makes me guilty before the people around us. And so can I actually be so consistent as to say, um, God, do away with all the evil? Because I know what that means. That means do away with me as well. So here's where I want to take us. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus comes into this world, okay? And so this is God, like, entering into the world. And it's, it's, it's um, the preacher is sitting here saying, like, look at how broken this world is. This world is terrible. And he's saying, it would be better not to ever live in this world. Better not to ever even be alive than to have to live in a world like this, right? So the preacher wrote that. Then hundreds of years later, here comes God himself and saying, I see how broken this world is. It's not better not to live in it. I'm going to go live in it myself, right? And Jesus takes on flesh and lives in this world. And here's what he said he was about. This is in Luke chapter 4. He says it like this. He came to Nazareth where he had been been brought up. 
And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. See, what Jesus is doing is he's coming into this world that's full of oppression, and he knew it. And he comes in, and what he says is like he's declaring his purpose. And his purpose in this world is like eventually going to be setting everything to right. So eventually, Jesus is going to come back as the judge. We read about this in Thessalonians a couple of times when we went through that, where there's this day where, man, like every bit of evil gets punished and and all this kind of stuff. God really does fix it all. But in the meantime, here is God entering this broken world. And as Jesus, he's living this life and he's saying, here's my mission. Here's what I'm here to do is to come to people that are oppressed and to give them freedom, to come to people that are sick and hurting and to bring them healing. Like, I'm here to proclaim good news. God is here, and Jesus did that, not by just fixing it from a distance, but by entering into the pain and the suffering. And so here we are in this world that's full of injustice, and we look around, and we're like, man, everything is so broken and unjust, and Jesus is like, I know, it sure is, but I'm going to be with you in the midst of that whole thing. And I feel like that is such a beautiful picture of how God works. Man, we want him to just fix it all, but if he fixes it all right now, instantly, then I'm done for too, right? I get discarded, but because God is gracious and patient, he, he draws us, right? He draws me to himself, and he gives me this chance to see who he really is and who I really am, and he gives me the opportunity to find healing in him that, that, that mends, that heals the evil that's in my heart, and, and to be this person then that beca- can become transformed and whole before him, and to then, then eventually take on this good calling that Jesus himself had. So as he goes through this life and he's offering hope and healing and good news and freedom, he calls us in and says, hey, uh, you can't fix anybody completely, but I want you to live your lives the same way that I did of just offering that hope and healing and peace and freedom to the people that are around you. It's a beautiful thing. Jesus embraced the injustice, took it upon his shoulders, was crushed by it, and found a way to turn that into life for the people that are around us. And so back to... um, the beginning with the serial podcast and Adnan Syed is released from prison. What actually happened there is the judge comes in and it, he does what, what's called vacating the conviction. So there was a conviction, he was guilty, and then they vacate that conviction. Okay, the, the state no longer has any opinion on um, whether you did this or not. That's kind of what it amounts to. And really that's what happens for us in Jesus. Like we know more better than anyone else how guilty we are, but in Jesus that conviction against us is vacated. He no longer sees us as um, unjust, as evil. He sees us as his children. And he loves us. He sees us through the eyes of Jesus who loved us so much that he chased after us, embraced us, brought us in, holds us to himself, sees us as pure and blameless before him. It says in Ephesians, it's this beautiful, beautiful picture of of justice that looks different than we expected it to, different than we were demanding that it would, right? And yet in some big way, it's like God has made everything beautiful in its time. He invites us in and he calls us to go out into the people around us. So as I said, um, I recognize that this is like a, a personal thing. It's a hard thing. There's a lot that's, that's good to wrestle with here. And I want to invite you to keep doing that. And to do that, I'm going to invite Chelsea to come on up. And um, this is the kind of thing that it's all about time with the Lord, right? It's all about time to reflect and sit with him and to speak with him about what is good or bad or frustrating or whatever about what we just heard. And, um, and so we're just going to give you the gift of 
some time here with Chelsea to process that in the Lord's presence.